Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A man was working in his garden when he saw a little girl walking up the street who he knew coming from school and going back home for a lunch. And a panel van drew up beside her and her legs disappeared into the van. When a serious crime is committed in a small town, a handful of detectives are charged with solving the case. I'm Yardley, and I'm fascinated by these stories. So I invited my friends, Detectives Dan and Dave, to help me gather the best true crime cases from around the country and have the men and women who investigated them tell us how it happened. I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. We're identical twins from small town USA. Dave investigated sex crimes and crimes against children. He's now a patrol sergeant at his police department. Dan investigated violent crimes. He's now retired. Together, we have more than two decades experience and have worked hundreds of cases. We've altered names, places, relationships, and certain details in these cases to maintain the privacy of the victims and their families. So we ask you to join us in protecting their true identities, as well as the locations of these crimes, out of respect for everyone involved. Thank you. Today on Small Town Dicks, we have the usual suspects. We have Detective Dave. Good day. Good day to you, sir. Absolutely. (laughs) And we have Detective Dan. Hello, team. Team. Team you. Hello. And small town fam, I hope you're sitting down because you guys lost your minds when we opened season eight with retired Deputy Constable Tom from Scotland. Yes, we get it. He gave us an amazing case in the world's end and he's back with another one. Tom, thank you so much for being here today. Really, the fans lost their minds over you. We totally get it. We're so very grateful that you've agreed to sit down with us again. Hi there. It's really a big day for us. We're chuffed, as they say over there. I'm unfamiliar with that term. (laughs) So, Tom, you are the author of several books. You have a long and storied career, so I'm just going to let you take it away and take it from here. Okay, thanks very much. Well, thanks for inviting me to speak. I want to talk about a particular case which is interesting from a number of aspects. Scotland's a very small country and we have a low crime rate in my own force area in the east of Scotland. We deal with about a dozen, 15 homicides a year. Most of these are domestics, as you might expect. 
domestics, like domestic violence. Exactly. But during the 1970s and 80s, we were visited by no less than three serial killers. Now, that's very, very improbable when you look at the stats. And anybody who looks at that dispassionately, behavioural sciences-wise, would say, well, they have to be connected. There has to be some sort of common thread running through that because you're in a small country and it's a very law-abiding country. And, you know, how can that be? Well, I don't know the answer to that, but I can tell you that these three men, all who were born within six months of each other, all who operated within the central belt of Scotland and the north of England, between them, they murdered about 25 young women and girls, sexually motivated, travelling, highly organised serial killers. And that, of course, posed us an enormous challenge. And I was lucky to be, and I say lucky advisedly because it was an enormous experience, I was fortunate enough to be involved in the investigations, to a greater or lesser extent, in all three. The one I want to talk about just now is a man called Robert Black, who abducted and murdered a number of girls. And I just want to talk through the case because it's got some interesting learning in it. On the 30th of July, 1982, a young girl called Susan Maxwell had been playing tennis in the border town of Coldstream. Now, that's right on the border between Scotland and England. She'd been playing tennis and she decided to walk home across the border, which is kind of like a state line, across the border into England, where she stayed with her family. Now, significantly, Susan was still carrying a tennis racket and she was dressed for tennis, a little pair of shorts and a T-shirt. A very, very hot day, a very, very hot summer. She was seen walking away from the tennis court, down the road, across the bridge, into England, and she was never seen again. Now, first of all, she was treated as a missing person. And of course, we all know that kids go missing when they usually end up coming home or they're gone for 12 hours or they fall in with a friend or whatever. But Susan wasn't that kind of girl. She was a lovely wee girl and she had never gone missing before. So almost straight away, she was treated as a suspicious missing person and we started to carry out physical searches. Very, very difficult. It's very wild border country there. The vegetation was at its height in the midsummer and we deployed hundreds of people from both forces because we in Lothian and Borders Police were on the Scottish side of the border and Northumberland Police were on the English side of the border. Both well-established forces, both big forces, both about the same size, 3,500 sworn officers, 1,500 support staff. So big organisations. And so we searched and we searched and we could not find Susan, nor did we find any sightings of her beyond the sightings that she was seen walking down the road towards the border between Scotland and England. Until 10 days later, when skeletal remains were found over 200 miles away in the Midlands of England, south of the place where she was last seen, lying abandoned just off a lay-by near a busy road. What's a lay-by? A lay-by is a, a truck stop, rest stop, 
just a piece that you drive off the road and stop your car. Right. And how old was Susan? Susan was 11 years old. Okay. Now, at first, when the remains were found, we didn't think it was Susan because of the degree of putrefaction. There was little other than a skeleton remaining. But of course, it had been very, very warm. And being a child, soft tissues, her body had been rendered down very, very quickly by insect life and the rest. So it was two or three days before we actually identified her as Susan. Now, straight away, there was a jurisdictional issue because she had been in our area in Lothian and Borders and she was seen walking across the boundary into Northumberland and she had been found in a third force area, Staffordshire. So we had three forces who were interested and the jurisdiction or the responsibility for murder investigations traditionally in the UK has rested where the body lies. In other words, the place where the body is found not the place where the person has gone missing from. So we joined together in a three-force inquiry and for the first time ever in the UK, they appointed an officer in overall command. That is a senior chief officer with extensive detective experience to coordinate all three efforts. Later on in the World's End murders, I fulfilled that role, but in this case, It was a man called Hector Clark, who was an assistant chief constable in Northumberland. Very experienced detective, a very good diplomat as well, because he managed to get all three forces pulling together and all three forces contributing resources, both in terms of money and equipment, equally to the investigation. That sounds easy, but believe me, it's not easy to do. And Hector Clark pulled off a clever trick in doing that. But... We trudged on. We were still using the card and deck systems at that time. Ah, I remember you talked about that from the World's End case. It was all handwritten notes, right? Like literally on index cards and no computers. That's right. We started to use the computerized systems during this investigation, but we were still using the card and deck systems. And you can imagine we had three incident rooms. We had three huge indexes of cards, and the potential for error there was immense. But we got absolutely nowhere. There was no sightings. There was nothing. It was as if the perpetrator had disappeared off the face of the earth. The next thing that happened was, just less than a year later, on Friday 8th of July 1983, a lovely wee girl called Caroline Hogg, a five-year-old, had been at a school party And she was still wearing her pretty little party frock when her mum let her go out to play just near her home, near Portobello in Edinburgh. Now, Portobello is a sort of a suburb of Edinburgh and it's near a beach where there's fun fairs and there are all sorts of entertainments. And in the summer, it's crowded with people coming down to paddle and to swim and to go to the fun fair and the entertainments. Caroline Hogg went out to play and simply disappeared off the face of the earth. Nobody saw her being abducted. Nobody saw her walking in the street. She just disappeared, wearing a lovely little pink party frock, pretty wee blonde girl, and just as if she had been spirited away. Now, again, we treated it as a missing person, as we were bound to do, and we started to search. 
And we had a huge public support for this. I mean, when you have missing persons like this and it hits the headlines, what you end up with is thousands of people coming forward to assist with the searches. And quite often, they cause as much trouble as they do good. But at the same time, you have got to accept their services. But managing them was extremely difficult. We searched and we searched, and of course, we looked in the water. And it was only then when we started to look closely at the people who were on the beach, we recognised that Portobello Beach had become a go-to destination for paedophiles from all over Scotland. Oh. Because there was entertainments on the pier, and quite frequently what happened was families would go down to Portobello and they would go into one of the bingo halls. And what they would do is, because the beach was very safe and because the water was very shallow, they would allow their children to play on the beach within their line of sight. We identified between half a dozen and a dozen paedophiles who regularly used to travel from far and wide to come to Portobello Beach to patrol along the tide line to see what kids they could pick up. And this was a revelation to us. There had been no reports of any assaults. There had been no criminal intelligence to that effect. Nothing. And often I have found that when you're engaging in a murder investigation or a missing person investigation, you start to turn over stones. And sometimes what you find underneath the stones are a revelation in themselves. So no sign of Caroline at all. We searched all the houses, etc., etc., and then, lo and behold, 10 days later, the remains of Caroline were found down in the Midlands of England again, about 20 miles from the position that Susan's remains were found. There was no question that we were dealing with two linked offences, and we were no question that we were dealing with a travelling, predatory, opportunist, sexual offender and paedophile. By this time... The Homes Computer System had come in. Home stands for Home Office Large Major Inquiry System. And it was the first computerised admin system that we had ever had. It came in in the wake of the debacle of the Yorkshire Ripper case in the late 70s. And they had worked hard over five or six years to develop this system. And there'd been a lot of training and a lot of investment. And at last we had this computerised index system. And it was just as well, because by that time, not only did we have Susan Maxwell and the Three Forces, but we had Caroline Hogg. So we started to build this database and try and see whether there were any hits or any similarities. Now, as we went through the 1980s, we were getting nowhere, but we were confident that we weren't at least making any mistakes. We were also confident that this person would offend again. And what we wanted to do was put ourselves in a position where we could be very quick to react and respond. And we started to develop a system very much like the VICAP system in the States of vulnerable missing persons. What's the VICAP system? So VICAP in the United States is a nationwide database where investigators can insert certain aspects and facts about their investigations, patterns, to see if there's similarities with other unsolved cases throughout the United States. It's just an information sharing service that an investigator can look at and go, I'm completely stumped 
I wonder if anybody else is dealing with something like this. They're really useful. So we hadn't had that and we developed it. So if a child went missing at all, anywhere, then we had a system where roads would be blocked, where people would go to fixed points, where observations would be taken. We had a lot more in the way of technical assistance there in terms of highway cameras, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we were all set up for the next event because we were sure there would be a next event. And there was a next event. In 1986, a 10-year-old girl called Sarah Harper went missing from Leeds, which is down in the north of England. And she was found dead in a canal nearby. There were some similarities, but there were also differences. So we always kept Sarah Harper's case to one side slightly, but at the same time we monitored it. And we were also interested in another case that happened in 1981 in Northern Ireland, a missing girl called Jennifer Cardy, and another girl who went missing in 1978 in Devon called Jeanette Tate. They were all similar in that these girls had just disappeared off the face of the earth, and then their remains were found many, many weeks later, hundreds of miles from where they were abducted. Cause of death was very difficult to establish. What we could establish is that they were smothered and they had all been sexually assaulted. There were absolutely no forensics at all from any of these crime scenes. Absolutely none. Nothing. Is that because the perpetrator didn't leave any or because they didn't collect them correctly or preserve them? It was because of the state of the remains. Two of the wee girls were barely more than skeletal because of the weather conditions. But in 1990, that's seven years on from Caroline Hogg's abduction, we had a breakthrough again. A Friday in July in 1990, a man working in his garden in a tiny little border village called Stow. Now, Stow is a what you would describe as a one-horse town. <laughs> it really is a one-horse town. It's just a main street, nothing else. And a man was working in his garden when he saw a little girl walking up the street who he knew coming from school and going back home for a lunch. And as he watched, a panel van drew up beside her and her legs disappeared into the van. And he knew the girl and he thought, that's odd. So he watched the van drive away and he had the presence of mind to note the registered number of the van and he noted it accurately. The licence plate. Yeah, the licence plate. Now that's quite unusual to record it accurately. They, they often get one digit wrong or <laughs> transposed or something. Which is all the difference, of course. Right. Now, the man in Stow, and this is where it gets surreal, the man in Stow recognised the little girl as the local policeman's daughter. <gasps> so he phones the police station and he said, I've just seen such and such a girl named her being picked up by a van which has driven north through the village of Stow. The policeman who gets the call to attend to is the girl's father. Oh, my. And he is eight miles away doing other police duties. I've often tried to imagine what's going through his head as he's driving that eight miles back to Stowe. He gets back to Stowe 
and he's standing in the main street of Stow talking to the informant about what happened. And all of a sudden, the informant says, this is the van coming back down the road. Oh. What the van had done is the van had stopped, had done a U-turn and was coming back south. So the policeman, the father of the girl, steps out into the road, stops the van. By this time, another police officer's joined them. So they take the driver out of the van, they secure him, and the father of the girl goes round to the back of the van, opens the van, and it's just full of stuff. And he rummages about, and in the bottom of the van, in a bag, a purpose-made bag, semi-conscious and gagged, is his daughter. Oh, my God. The odds. Every one of those aspects is just astronomical. I know. I was at an FBI reunion thing, and I told this story, and I'm convinced half the audience didn't believe me. He said, no, come on, you're kidding on. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. No, no, that can't be. That can't be. That is what happened. That's insane. The driver was Robert Black. And Robert Black had a complete abduction kit in his van. He had the bag. He had gags. He had bindings. And his technique was always the same. He would abduct the child and he would quickly put them in the back of the van, subdue them, he would sexually assault them, and then he'd put them in the bag. And then what he would do, classic of the type, he would head for home. He would head for his safe space. And so what he'd done with the wee girl is he'd picked her up, he'd secured her in the back of the van, and then he'd turned round to head for home. There's only one road he could have gone, and that's right back through the village of Stow and right into the arms of the police officer that was waiting there for him. So he pulled off the side of the road into a roadside sort of uh, parking spot, just enough so that he could make sure the girl was subdued, gagged her, and put her into the bag. And this is interesting because when we revisited the causes of death of the other girls, of course, smothering, suffocation was the cause of death. So probably the first two girls actually suffocated within the bag because he had 200 miles to drive. Wow. I imagine the restraint this officer had on scene to not uh, dismember Robert Black is pretty remarkable. For kidnapping his daughter. Right. It wasn't restraint, it was shock. I spoke to him various times about this and it was just the shock of the whole thing and then the relief of finding his daughter alive. And by the time his rage started to build, Black was already in custody of other officers in the way. Right. The constable himself is now retired a long time ago. He himself cannot account for why he behaved as he did, but he was just paralysed by shock. Not paralysed enough not to do his duty, but finding his daughter and the relief of finding his daughter. So, yeah, it's funny how you think you know how you will behave and you think you know what your response will be, but the reality is that you you don't know until you're tested. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you kind of hope that it's like a higher power that puts you on autopilot right there and you just revert to your training and you get the job done. 
I believe in a higher power when we're out there in some of these incidents. And I can't say that that didn't happen there, that a higher power took over in that instance. Well, there's, oh, the, the policeman in question is a large rugby playing guy, you know, <laughs> so this is not some weedy little character. This, this is a serious person. But anyway, that's what happened. So then we started to look at Robert Black. Robert Black's arrested for the abduction of the girl. But of course, we are fairly sure that he has responsibility because of the MO for Caroline and Susan Maxwell. Robert Black is born in 1945 in the central part of Scotland, has no criminal convictions at all, none. He is adopted as a very young boy and he's put into a care home, a church care home, where he is seriously sexually and physically abused. When we search his house, we find extensive collection of pornography, including a lot concerning children, and we find a large collection of children's clothes. Then, of course, we set to find out where he has been and what he's accountable for. And coming to our rescue is the fact that he works for a very old-fashioned transport company as a delivery driver. And because he's a loner, because he's unmarried, he's not particularly sociable, he volunteers for all the weekend work and the long drives. And of course, this gives him a facility to do what he does. But his company are so old-fashioned that they keep all the petrol receipts and all the food receipts for all of his journeys going back 20 years. Oh, wow. A little old lady who does all the filing, his company office has got boxes and boxes and boxes of these petrol receipts. And so what we do is we sit down to do a million-piece jigsaw and find out exactly where he was at certain times. And we tie him to being close to Susan Maxwell, close to Caroline Hogg, close to Sarah Harper, close to Jennifer Cardy in Northern Ireland, and close to Jeanette Tate in Devon and Cornwall. And so we form a circumstantial case. Again, Black saying nothing. He'll talk to you until the cows come home, until you start to get onto the subject he doesn't want to talk about. And then he wants to talk about something else. He is interviewed and he is interviewed and he's interviewed and he never confronts the issue. As I say, he would spend 10 hours talking to you all about things which are inconsequential. What sort of things? Does he talk about sports? Does he talk about the weather? What are his supposed interests? He talks about driving. He talks about cars. He talks about where he's been. He talks about trivia. He talks about the news. He talks about anything other than the subject in hand. And when after you've built up this rapport with him, you try and steer him round to that, he immediately short circuits and goes back to talk about something else. It's a part of his life that he can't face. We know that he has conversations with fellow prisoners saying that he was out of control and that he can't help himself. He's attracted to young people, but that's about the extent of it. Eventually, in 1994, he is brought to court along with 22 tonnes of documentary evidence. Oh, my God. 
the inquiry at that time has cost close to £12 million. And by that time, by putting together this jigsaw of the petrol receipts, he has been linked to 14 sites of serious crime. So not just the murders he's convicted. Eventually, he's convicted of four murders. He dies before he can be tried for the fifth, Jeanette Tate. But the other crimes he's associated with are crimes of attempted abduction because a number of occasions he pulls up beside young girls, he tries to get them into his van, but they manage to escape. Eventually, he is convicted of all these things and sentenced to life imprisonment. He never breaks his silence and he dies in prison about five or six years later. Hey, Small Town Fam, it's Yardley. I want to talk about Pros. Pros is the custom hair and skin beauty brand where you get on their website, answer a bunch of questions about where you live and how old you are and what kind of hair you have, what kind of hair you want to have. And then, from millions of possible formulas, they create a formula just for you. So I'm lucky I have a lot of hair. Most days, my hair is the boss of me. So I need shampoo and conditioner that gets my hair to calm down a little bit. So I've been using Pros for a while, and one of my favorite things about it is you can choose your scent. They have a review and refine tool, which learns from my feedback and then adjusts the formula. Also, Pros is a certified B Corp. It's cruelty-free, and it's the first and only carbon-neutral custom beauty brand. So it's not only better for you, it's better for the planet. So, small town fam, Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash town. That's right. You get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash town. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash town. Do it. Hey, folks. Detective Dave here. Let me tell you about Simply Safe, the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. I depend on Simply Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360 degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Simply Safe Home Security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break in. In addition, Simply Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens, and flood and fire detection. With Simply Safe Home Security, I have the flexibility to use keypads at multiple entries at my house. This option is especially important to me and my family. I can provide access to people I trust and limit having multiple keys outside of my control, all at the push of a button via the Simply Safe app. It comes with a variety of cameras for indoors and outdoors. And best of all, Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. It gives me peace of mind knowing I can leave the house, I can leave town, I can even leave the country, and I know my home is simply safe. The mobile app integration makes it so easy to make sure everything's in place in real time. I check it every day when I'm away from home. Simply Safe is the best. U.S. News and World Report named Simply Safe Best Home Security Systems 2024. 
and Newsweek ranked it best customer service in home security. With Simply Safe, there are no contracts. And if you're not happy with the service or the product, they have a 60-day money-back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind. We want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/smalltown. That's simplysafe.com/smalltown. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Hey, small town fam, it's Yardley. It's going to be summer soon, so the potential for stinky pits is imminent. That's why I really love Lumi. I'm obsessed with their sweat control, cream deodorant. I think I've said this so many times, but honest to God, I never thought I'd use a cream deodorant because they're sloppy and gloppy and sticky and bleh. But Lumi isn't any of those things. It dries quickly, it's never sticky, and it doesn't leave any white streaks on my dark clothing. So all of those things are a win for me. If you're not familiar with Lumi, let me tell you a few things. Six years ago, an OBGYN invented her game-changing whole body deodorant, and now it has over 300,000 five-star reviews from people like me. Lumi is baking soda-free, paraben-free, and pH-balanced, so it's safe for your pits and your bits, which means you can use it below the belt. They have a lovely variety of fresh, bright scents like clean tangerine, my favorite, lavender sage, or toasted coconut. And the secret to Lumi's success is it's formulated and powered by mandelic acid. That's how it stops odor before it starts. So, small town fam, Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, my fave, and two free products of your choice, like mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. And on top of that, as a special offer for listeners, new customers get 15% off all Lumi products with our exclusive code, which is small town. And if you combine the 15% off with the already discounted starter pack, that equals over 40% off the starter pack. So use code small town for 15% off your first purchase at lumideodorant.com. That's code small town at L-U-M-E deodorant.com. Do it. Now, what's the learning from this? Well, obviously our systems for dealing with missing persons. I mean, in the UK, up until recently, the way we've dealt with missing persons or alleged missing persons has been haphazard in the extreme. And we've found this with other murder investigations too. Too often, the disappearance of particularly teenage girls has been written off as run off with a boyfriend gone to London, et cetera, et cetera, without actually any justification for that. And one of the learning points from this was that you've really got to be on your mark as far as missing persons are concerned. And you've really not got to delay in the hope that they'll come home or that they'll be found in a neighbour's house. You've got to set and train very, very quickly your preventative systems and your observation points to make sure you don't fall victim to someone like Robert Black. The other thing that it proved was the efficacy of the officer and overall command system, where you had a chief officer who is appointed by the constituent forces 
to take overall control of a joint investigation. If you do not have that, then you get forces pulling in opposite directions and always wanting to solve their own crime rather than assist somebody else. And that was the first time it had been done. And in cases that spread over force boundaries, we now do that as a matter of routine. So there are two positives that came from that appalling reign of terror of Robert Black. God, <laughs> like missing persons are one thing. When you hear about children being overdue or children being missing for a matter of hours and you speak to the families and like, this is completely out of character for my daughter or my son. That's an officer's worst nightmare is to go to those. You're always like, please let me find him in the house playing hide and seek or something. But to have that many and spread out and then days later you hear, oh, that child was found 200 miles south of here. Damn. The worst. Yeah, we got to get this guy. I learned a hard lesson later on. A wee lad went missing from a little village outside Edinburgh. It was at night. And one of the things we were always taught was search the house, search the house again, search the house again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because what kids do is they stay out late, they get reported missing, they know they're going to get into trouble, so they sneak in the back door and into their bed. And it's not the first time that we've had searches out on, you know, moorland and all sorts of stuff, carrying torches, and the kid's back in their bed. And it's always odd because we do that. We do secondary and tertiary searches because we know this. And when you're standing there in the front yard and mom and dad are hysterical, understandably so, and you say, I want to search your house, and they're yelling at you, that's the one place I know where they aren't. Why do you think I called you? You're wasting my time. Get out there and find my kid. Then you do another search and you find them hiding under a pile of clothes in the corner of their room because mom and dad were angry with them earlier. And he doesn't want to get in trouble. Yeah. And those are happy endings. Yeah, absolutely. The story I was going to say was that I went out to this little village with a missing person this week. And I got there and there was a crowd of people. There must have been 100 people there at the village hall all wanting to help with the search. And I thought, this is incredible. This is a response from this community. And eventually we found the wee boy. The wee boy was hiding in another person's house. So I asked the local cops, what's going on here? And they said that 10 years before, a wee girl had gone missing from that village and they had been found drowned in a pond just outside the village. And it was in the folk memory of that community, so that when they heard about a missing child, they were out there. Several generations, granny, and again, you know, with their torches and whatnot. But I thought it was interesting that that was somewhere lodged in their consciousness about missing persons, and they were going to make certain that it wasn't going to happen again. That's amazing. Tom, tell me... If the bodies of the girls that Robert Black was convicted for were mostly so decomposed that there was no DNA evidence, how did the prosecution build a case against him? He was tried in England, not in Scotland, because of where the bodies were found. And he was convicted under a tenet of English law called evidence of similar fact. He had been convicted of the abduction of the little girl in Stow. 
And so what they could do was say to the jury, here we have Robert Black, and here we have him in this position. Here's his petrol receipt. Here's his vehicle number. He was in this locality where this little girl was abducted from, and he's done it before, because here's the story of the abduction of the little girl in Stown. And circumstantial evidence is fascinating. A lot of my cases were circumstantial evidence. And circumstantial evidence is like, a, I always describe it to people as being like a tent. You've got a strong central pole, which is brittle. What you also need is you need silken threads, ropes supporting that central pole. And that's circumstantial evidence. That's all the little things that go around to support that main thrust of evidence. So in Robert Black's case, he was proved to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And this was his MO and he'd done it before. Fascinating. And how did you get the intelligence that the pier where they had these sort of weekend carnivals had become a hunting ground for pedophiles? Who brought that information to you? Well, when Caroline went missing, first of all, you start your investigation where she was last seen and work out. So she was last seen playing in a playground near the beach because she lived very near the beach of Portobello. So the first thing we tried to do was to place as many people as we could find who had been at or near the beach and then try to build up a picture of who was there and what they were doing. And almost immediately, we started to get descriptions of a funny man that looked like a clown. And this was a man who deliberately used to travel 50 miles by public transport to come to Portobello Beach. And he was a big, heavy-set guy, and he would wear a funny little hat, like a clown's hat. It wasn't a clown's hat, it was almost like a little golf hat. But he would wear it at a funny angle, and he would affect a sort of a humorous way about him so as to attract young children. So we got his description, and then we started to track back and we started to speak to local traders, the local chip shops, the local ice cream parlours, the local fun fair, all these sorts of people. And all of these folk know a great deal more than you would imagine. It was 1983, so we didn't have much CTTV. And then we looked at buses, public transport coming in to Portobello. We looked at trains, train connections, to try and see if we could pick up any patterns of travel. And that's how we came across these people. It was interesting because the reputational damage to Portobello as a seaside resort suffered terribly as a result of the Catalina Hub abduction. Even though we now know she was never on the beach, even though we now know she had nothing to do with any of these people, because that wasn't Robert Black's MO. Robert Black's MO was to pick people up off the street and whip them in the back of the van. The reputation of Portobello was destroyed and most of the businesses closed down and only recently has that boardwalk really started to revive itself all these years later because people just didn't want to go to Portobello because of Caroline Hogg, because of the image of that little girl who had been abducted. They just didn't want to go there. And tell me, how far was the walk home from the tennis court that Susan was playing on to her home? Was it a couple of miles or was he just so fast and snatched her right up? Half a mile. Half a mile. Yeah, and the tragedy was that she'd been offered to be picked up and taken home, and she said, no, I'll walk. You mean a friend that she'd been playing tennis with had offered to drive her home? 
Yes. Oh, God. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. I find similarities when we talk about these cases and... In season two, one of our early cases was Monster, and it was a two-parter. It was about a child abduction, stranger abduction. And the first thing that offender did was take the girl to a boat landing and sexually assault her. And I see the similarity here with Mr. Black and what he did. It's because their urge is hitting him right there. I think that little girl was a target of opportunity. I don't think he was expecting to see a girl right there. Or that he had been stalking her. Yeah, I think he drove by and said, oh my God, there's one right there. Without thinking, I'm going to have to drive out of town and then come back through town. Because if you plan it out, you're not going to revisit where you picked her up. Of course, that's so risky. So I honestly think that it's this urge that they can't control and they have to offend. Oh, yeah, I think that's right. It's a conditioned response. All these attacks were opportunists. There'd be no stalking involved. But what he did was Black was all primed and ready to go. He had all his abduction kit all ready to go. And he just drove about. And, of course, who knows how many girls he tried to abduct, how many girls ran away, how many times his attempted abductions were intercepted by somebody else, how many times he was frightened off. We'll never know. But we know from the one living survivor, the policeman's daughter, exactly what he did. He drove to the nearest place where he could stop so as to carry out the first assault and secure his victim. And then he secured the victim and then headed for home. Always headed for home. And it's like returning to their place of security, their lair, as it were. And we know from the timelines that in some of the other cases... He actually took the time to carry out a delivery. So he had stuff to deliver. He worked for a small engineering firm. So we know that he carried out some small deliveries. In the case of Sarah Harper, we know that he'd carried out a delivery 
about 10 minutes after he'd abducted her. But then as soon as he'd done that, he was off and heading for home again. And is there any indication that once he got home, he held them captive for a few days? Or do you not know that? It's very unlikely that any of them survived the journey back to his lair. Whether he actually took them home, there was no forensic fingerprint of these girls having been in his house. And it was not the sort of place that was cleaned very often. I can say that. So we doubt that any of the girls survived the journey because they were placed in this bag. The other thing that was remarkable was it's amazing how small, how flat, how small a child can be. People make a mistake. You see a child, they're quite big. It's amazing the spaces that a child can either conceal themselves in or be concealed in. And he had this all planned out, but I mean, he had bindings, he had gags, he had this bag that he had constructed into which to put his victims. So yeah, he was all set to go, waiting for a target of opportunity. You said that there was numerous children's clothes at his house. Were you able to match those to any specific child or was that just one of his things? That was a fetish of his. It's one of his things and what we suspect is that he stole children's clothing and retained children's clothing and obviously it was some sort of get-off for him. But the clothing from the murdered girls was not removed. There was no clothing missing. In fact, one of the ways we identified one of them was because of distinctive clothing. So he didn't remove the clothing and he didn't steal the clothing from his victims. He was driving all over the country. Mm. I mean, he knows the countryside. He knows little places that he can go that are out of sight, out of mind of people. And if the opportunity presents itself, depending on where he is, he knows exactly where he can go. That's right. And we were very, very lucky. And you need a bit of luck in these cases. We were very, very lucky that the place he abducted the girl in Stow, there's only one road goes through it. And it's very difficult to take a reroute because it's going through the borderlands of Scotland. There's hills on either side. So without taking an awful lot of time about it, he was forced to turn around and come back down the same road. And of course, that was his undoing. Right. What an extraordinary case. Thank you so much for bringing that to us today. Ah, oh, but it really kills you. It kills you. I like how investigations come together. That's the fascinating part for me. I would think for you, Dave, and for you, Dan, I mean, obviously it lands on me in a different way as a civilian, but you two having been immersed in it in your own work. Like, I understand what you're saying. Can you further articulate that a bit? I think for me, it's satisfying to hear that police officers and law enforcement, no matter where you are, it lands in the same part of your soul when these crimes happen and that those guys care as much as I did. That's what's reaffirming to me that they're really good people in law enforcement. There are some bad people in law enforcement too, but the ones that I liked working with, they're the good ones. Again, more similarities than differences in the way you all conduct yourselves when you do it well. Well, and just investigative techniques and the minds of detectives, doesn't matter which country you're in, we're all thinking along the same lines. That's right. What I've always tried to do was to take some learning from these cases, was to take something that was positive. It's a ridiculous thing to say in a way because these young girls all with so much potential dead in such 
terrible, terrible circumstances. You've got to try to say, well, let's try and learn from this and let's put systems in place to try to make sure it won't happen again, something like that. You have to try to take some positive thing. Otherwise, the burden gets too heavy, frankly. Absolutely. I tell you, though, it's funny, during that period, you find yourself changing your own behaviour. Now, I'll give you an example. When Caroline Hogg was abducted, of course, we were looking for local suspects, etc., etc. And various people who were hanging about outside primary schools, they were reported as being suspicious and, you know, they would be dragged in and interviewed. And I remember driving home one afternoon and I was quite near my house and there was a little girl on her own walking down the road, just on her own, walking down the road. And I thought, I wonder where she's going. I thought, I'll stop and speak to her and find out if she's all right. And I thought, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) Is that going to be misinterpreted? And so I drove on till I got home and I said to my wife, nip in the car, drive back down the road and see if there's a wee girl there and ask her if she's all right. Because on one hand, I was struck with this thing, oh my God, if a little girl is abducted under my nose, I would never forgive myself. At the same time, I thought, If I stop and speak to her, how will it be interpreted? But if your wife goes, as a woman, checking on a small child, it's a completely different scenario. Yes, it is, although, of course, we're not without female child abductors either. True. The Moors. Was it the Moors murders? Myra Hindley. Yeah, Myra Hindley. And, of course, we had Fred West and his wife. Oh, my God, those two. Now, before I'd been involved in this, I would have stopped and spoken to the girl and said, where are you going? Where's your mum and dad? Whatever. Because of what I knew, I was wary about it. And it made me think twice and worry about how it might be interpreted. I recognize it in my own behavior. Even when I'm off duty and, you know, I'm around somebody's children and their child comes over and they jump on your lap and I'm like, no, I've investigated too many sex crimes. Don't do that. Or when I'm even working and I'm doing surveillance on a house and I'm in an unmarked car and I always go, I can't wait until I get called in as a suspicious vehicle because I don't fit in the neighborhood. There's a guy who's been sitting in the driver's seat for the last hour. So you recognize what other people are going to recognize as suspicious or questionable behavior. And you're like, I can already see how I get called in. Or I can already see how, God forbid, somebody asks me, my child's in the bathroom taking a bath. I need to go get the phone. Can you just keep an eye on it? Nope. No. Don't even ask me because I know how this turns out. All it takes is a misinterpretation. There's lots of situations in life where I just don't even expose myself to that because I know what it could look like. Mm -hmm. Once the allegation's made, there can be absolutely no evidence whatsoever, but it sticks. Right. Tom, do you have children? Yes, I have grandchildren. And you have grandchildren. Were your children young when these abductions were happening and did it make you just go home and hug them extra tight that day? My daughter was within a month of the same age as Susan Maxwell. Oh, my God. So just about 11 years old. Yeah. And, yeah, it makes you very aware of that. But it also... (laughs) I mean, my wife would tell you better than I would. used to come home and say, listen, what's she doing? Who's she got with her? Where's she going? (laughs) (laughs) Right. And of course, then your wife says, listen, just back off, back off. Just, you know, everybody all right. 
You say it's all very well for you to say that, but you've not seen what I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. I know what happens. <laughs> exactly. You can't keep them on a leash, though. Absolutely not. But um, if you are immersed in that, and if you're working on that for years, it does change you. You can't help it. You can't help it. Would your wife say that it's changed you? All my family say that I am unbelievably laid back now that I've left the police. <laughs> they do. They don't recognize me. That's great. When my son went to college, he went to university in Glasgow. It was very funny. At that time, I was the head of operations of the force, et cetera, et cetera. So I had to have the conversation with him about drugs, you see. So I said, now listen, you'll be offered cannabis and blah, 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 blah. You've been brought up well. You make your own judgment. But one thing, do not, do not under any circumstances bring anything back under my roof. Oh, Dad, I wouldn't do that. I said, no, no, you don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Like, don't say I won't and then hide it in your drawer. I mean, don't do it. Yeah, don't. You're a grown up, you're an adult, but just be aware of the consequences. And I'm glad to see you never did. So, <laughs> good man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been fantastic, Tom. Thank you so much for your time. Really incredible. Thanks again, sir. Yes, thank you. Great to talk to you. Small Town Dicks is produced by Gary Scott and Yardley Smith and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. This episode was edited by Soaring Bajan, Gary Scott, and me, Yardley Smith. Our associate producers are Aaron Gaynor, The Real Nick Smitty, and Alec Cowan. Our music is composed by John Forrest. Our editors extraordinaire are Logan Heftel and Soaring Bajan. And our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, visit us on our website at smalltowndicks.com. Small Town Dicks would like to thank Speech Docs for providing transcripts of this podcast. You can find these transcripts on our episode page at smalltowndicks.com. And for more information about Speech Docs and their service, please go to speechdocs.com. And join the Small Town fam by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at small town dicks we love hearing from you and if you support us on patreon your subscription will give you access to exclusive content and merchandise that isn't available anywhere else go to patreon.com slash small town dicks podcast that's right your subscription also makes it possible for us to keep going to small towns across the country in search of the finest rare true crime cases told as always by the detectives who investigated them So thanks for listening, small town fam. Nobody's better than you.